Today's episode is sponsored by Tigo. For most of us, indemnity insurance is one of our biggest costs of practice. But when was the last time you took a look at the coverage and compared your premium with others? Many of us are still with the same insurer we joined in med school or intern year. Thousands of doctors have made the switch to Tigo and benefited from their personalised approach to pricing. You will also get an extra two months free in your first year. If you are new to private practice, you might even qualify for four years of discounted premiums. Tigo offers competitive premiums, quality cover and 24-7 support backed by top Medico legal advisors. Get a free quote and discover why thousands of doctors are insured by Tigo by visiting tigo.com.au. Hello listeners and welcome to Deep Breaths, a podcast covering topics related to the Part 2 anaesthetic exam. I'm Dr. Kate Steele. And I'm Dr. Kate McCrossan. And today's episode is The Show Must Go On, where we will discuss perioperative neurocognitive disorders. As always, in this podcast, we represent our own views and not those of our employers or ANSCA. In January 2022, Anesthesia published a review article titled Acute Perioperative Neurocognitive Disorders, a Narrative Review, which we will go through today. Now, we note that we've covered delirium previously during Season 2, Episode 14, Dazed and Confused, but today's episode will be more broad than that, and we will delve into the recommended definitions, postulated pathophysiologies, and prevention strategies. So to begin with, why are perioperative neurocognitive disorders important? Well, put simply, perioperative neurocognitive disorders are the most common complication experienced by older individuals, affecting up to 65% of patients undergoing anesthesia and surgery. Now, commensurate with an aging population, by 2050, it is estimated that patients aged above 60 years will comprise 25% of the population and receive 50% of all anesthetics. The immediate and long-term consequences of perioperative neurocognitive disorders impose a huge social and economic burden on society, as well as having profound effects on individuals and their families. In November 2018, an article titled Recommendations for the Nomenclature of Cognitive Change Associated with Anesthesia and Surgery, 2018, was simultaneously published in many prestigious journals, including Anesthesiology and the BJA, bringing together a multi-specialty group named the Perioperative Cognition Nomenclature Working Group to run through the recommended definitions. The authors recommended that perioperative neurocognitive disorders be used as an overarching term for cognitive impairment or change identified in the preoperative or postoperative period. They also recommended aligning the diagnostic criteria as much as possible with the DSM-5, which has three pillars. Firstly, a subjective complaint, either from the patient, an informant or a clinician. Secondly, an objective impairment or change related to standard deviations from controls or norms. And thirdly, an instrumental ADL assessment. So beginning with pre-anesthesia and surgery, if a patient has an objectively measurable subtle cognitive impairment at baseline, the term pre-existing cognitive impairment can be used. This may be identified, as it would be in the community, as a mild neurocognitive disorder or mild cognitive impairment or a major neurocognitive disorder or dementia. As discussed in our episode, Dazed and Confused in Season 2, delirium is a recognised DSM-5 diagnosis. The term postoperative delirium is defined as that which occurs in hospital up to one week post-procedure or until discharge, whichever occurs first, and meets the DSM-5 diagnostic criteria. So, onto the term postoperative cognitive dysfunction, or POCD. 
POCD has been used primarily in research to describe an objectively measurable decline in cognitive function at varying intervals after anesthesia and surgery. It is a somewhat difficult term in that there is no standardised definition of POCD for either clinical or research purposes. The authors thus recommend some new terms which are better aligned with pre-existing DSM-5 criteria. They suggest the term delayed neurocognitive recovery for patients experiencing post-operative neurocognitive dysfunction after discharge, but before full recovery, up to 30 days post-op, and may be classified as either mild or major. The authors then suggest that if the signs and symptoms of cognitive dysfunction persist past the expected time course for recovery from surgery, then the term becomes post-operative mild or post-operative major neurocognitive dysfunction, which will occur 30 days after the procedure. In terms of diagnosis, the criteria for decline should be aligned with the DSM-5, which is one to two standard deviations below controls or norms for mild neurocognitive dysfunction, and over or equal to two standard deviations below controls or norms for major neurocognitive dysfunction. In addition, the classification of mild and major NCD requires assessment of ADLs with an appropriate tool to measure changes in function. Now we are on top of our definitions, we'll dive more into the narrative review article. First, let's take a look at the pathophysiology of perioperative neurocognitive disorders. Now this has been somewhat hampered by the difficulty representing an equivalent to perioperative neurocognitive disorders in animal models, as well as a focus in the research on an association with Alzheimer's disease. With regards to mechanisms, the first we will consider is neurodegenerative disease. In animal models, volatile anaesthetics have been associated with amyloidopathy and tauopathy, which are hallmarks of Alzheimer's disease. In addition, and also in animal models, surgically induced neuroinflammation is associated with a decline in behaviour. But this has not been replicated with anaesthesia alone. It should be noted that preclinical and animal research clearly has its limitations. Next, we will look at inflammation. The theory behind this is that peripheral inflammation triggered by surgery can lead to neuroinflammation and that this is a key factor in triggering a cascade of neurocognitive change. Elderly patients may already be vulnerable to this process due to low-grade chronic inflammation and thus the brain is more sensitive to insults. Neuronal damage is thought to be the downstream effect of neuroinflammation. Analogous to troponins after a myocardial infarction is the release of the neuronal proteins neurofilament light and tau in the response to acute neuronal injury. Blood neurofilament light levels reflect axonal injury and have been linked to pathologies such as multiple sclerosis. Tau proteins are the major constituents of intraneuronal and glial fibrillar lesions described in Alzheimer's disease as well as other neurodegenerative disorders referred to as tauopathies. And finally, in this section on pathophysiology, we'll look at frailty. The authors state, frailty is reflected by an individual's reduced capacity to recover from a stressful event, increasing the risk of poor outcomes. Frailty has been associated with poor post-operative outcomes, including increased length of stay, delirium, risk of institutionalisation, and 30-day mortality. Preoperative frailty has also been associated with an increased risk of cognitive decline at 3 and 12 months post-operatively. The authors also note that frailty impacts outcomes not only after major surgery, but also after lower risk procedures. So now we know some of the theory, but how does this theory actually apply to us in practice? So let's think about identifying at-risk patients and prevention strategies. When it comes to reducing delirium and dementia, the Lancet Commission on Dementia advocates prevention as the only currently accessible intervention. The framework includes modifiable risk factors associated with the perioperative period. 
We know that post-operative neurocognitive disorders are more common following an episode of delirium, so theoretically, preventing delirium may be a target. Baseline modifiable risk factors for dementia include diabetes, hypertension, obesity, smoking, depression, cognitive inactivity, and physical inactivity. Now, there are currently two studies investigating multi-component interventions to reduce delirium, including prehabilitation, rehabilitation, management of comorbid conditions, medication management, and exercise. We will await the results with great interest. Now, coupled with this, the authors hypothesize that the measurement of various biomarkers may contribute to algorithms to identify at-risk patients. In terms of interventions that we as anaesthetists could adopt, there has been much interest in whether the use of processed electroencephalogram or EEG-guided anaesthesia, including the use of commercial products such as BIS or Entropy, may reduce delirium. The theory is that by using guidance of processed EEG to run lighter anaesthesia with less drug exposure, that this will reduce delirium. There has been conflicting evidence in trials run thus far, with the ENGAGES trial finding no difference in effect between bisguided anaesthesia and routine care on delirium outcomes, with some limitations to the trial. In contrast, the BALANCED delirium substudy, which compared two BIS targets, 35 versus 50, demonstrated a statistically significant decrease in delirium incidence with lighter anaesthesia. The final section of the paper is a section titled What to Tell Your Patients. It is a few paragraphs which basically summarises that there is much we don't know and to quote, we are still some way from understanding how best to prevent these complications. There is a gap with regards to the availability of patient management guidelines for patients who are both cognitively healthy and for those who already have dementia. The authors also recommend discussing the risk of delirium with patients and carers such that they can make an informed decision about the procedure and may engage in risk reduction strategies. So Kate, out of curiosity, how do you approach at-risk patients in the pre-anesthetic clinic with regard to the risk of acute perioperative neurocognitive disorders? Is there anything that you do typically? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, this is one of the things we see all the time. So typically you'd have a male patient in his 70s with mm. all the various comorbidities that you'd expect presenting for, um, you know, skin cancer removal of the scalp, perhaps something involving the bone, BSCC. Mm. So anecdotally, myself and my colleagues find these kind of patients, for one example, are at a risk of a delirium. Mm. But realistically, we know that almost any type of surgery and anaesthesia puts elderly patients at risk. Absolutely. So, I had a relative who has since passed away, but they were in their 80s, um, were becoming cognitively more fragile, had a 30-minute terp under a spinal, you know, seemed to be very straightforward, yeah. very short, but it sent him delirious for several weeks post the procedure. Wow. So, you know, you can see how relatively minor insults in people who are vulnerable can actually have quite yeah. ongoing consequences. They just don't have that reserve, do they? Yeah, I think it's a tricky area because there is so little tangible information we can actually give patients on how to prevent what can be yeah. a very distressing complication of surgery and anesthesia. Yeah. So probably the most common discussion I have is with a cognitively well but older patient around the fact that they might be confused for a few days after the surgery. There are many causes for this and it will generally settle down on its own. Mm, that's fair enough. I do emphasise that this means they're not getting demented. Yes. As that can cause distress for patients who experience delirium for the first time. Mm. But now we know that there's a spectrum and perhaps there's an unlucky minority of patients who are at risk of a prolonged cognitive dysfunction post-operatively. Mm. But we don't know who they are or how to help them. Mm. So we're in a loop. Yeah. <laughs> and so what about you? How do you approach it? Yeah, so it's something that I broach with patients over the age of 60. 60 is my threshold um, for actually just mentioning it in conversation, regardless of whether it's um, planning for elective surgery or emergency surgery. But I always mention that 
it's something that can happen. We don't understand why. We have theories, but at this stage, we're not really sure if it's the anesthesia or the stress of surgery mm. or, you know, or whether there are other factors that we don't understand. But I warn them that that it can last for a variable period of time. It can be distressing. Sometimes, particularly if people have a pre-existing pre-existing cognitive deficit they may never return to baseline mm, and it's hard mm, for us to predict who will and mm, won't do that yep and i usually accom- accompany that conversation with an apology that what i'm what i'm giving them is very nebulous mm. not fixed information with no real solid yep. expectation for what they're going to have mm. because that i think in and of itself can be really frustrating for people for us to say mm. this happens we don't know why we don't know for how long we don't know if it's going to happen or not but you know, onwards and prosper, that can be really frustrating for people. Mm. Interestingly enough, I have had an elderly relative who underwent two rounds of NOF surgery a month apart because she fractured <laughs> and then got a peri- periprosthetic fracture. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and something, so this particular relative of mine had a terrible post-operative delirium for about seven days. And it's fascinating talking to her about it now mm. because she has absolutely no recollection mm. of what happened. And in and of itself, she finds that quite unsettling. Mm. She's someone who doesn't have pre-existing cognitive deficit she's very very sharp Mm. and I think as someone with all her faculties she finds the fact that she lost herself for that period of time really really unpleasant Um, and it's still I mean it's been over a year now since it happened she still talks about it in really mm. unhappy unsettled terms Mm. which I find fascinating and honestly not something I would have considered unless I'd gone through that myself so I think that's all something that we can take away from this conversation is that it's probably more impactful than we realize Mm. Mm. yeah yeah I think approaching the conversation with empathy Mm. and um it's just a shame we don't have any more concrete interventions that we can offer yeah exactly exactly Uh, so look anyway Ending our conversation about um, post-operative cognitive dysfunction Mm. there, let's dive into what we've learned in anaesthesia this week. So, Kate, what have you learned? What have I learned in anaesthesia? Um, I don't know whether I've learned that much in anaesthesia with the public holidays. I haven't been giving a lot of (laughs) anaesthetics. I did give some last week. It was all pretty straightforward. So I think uh, I do a part-time non-clinical job at the moment and Mm. the job involves looking at long COVID or um, what we should be calling post-COVID-19 condition, Mm. according to the WHO. Um, and so that's been really interesting work and I can't find a lot in terms of prevention, mm. but the only thing I can find and the advice I can offer to people is to return to normal activities slowly, particularly mm. exercise. Yeah. It seems to be the only thing that you can possibly do to reduce your risk of developing long COVID, yeah. um, despite being vaccinated and most people listening or most all will be vaccinated. That only reduces your risk of post-COVID-19 condition by about 50%. Yeah. So you can't rely on that. Uh, so it's the only thing I can suggest. In terms yeah. of in terms of advice to yeah. try to prevent it. Fair enough. And what have you learned in anesthesia this week? Well, I had the pleasure of providing anesthetic care for a patient with probably one of the worst hearts I've ever taken care of. Mm. So to give you some clinical context, this patient is in their early 30s. They are currently on the heart transplant waiting list. And the reason for this is congenital cardiac disease. So this patient has Epstein's anomaly, uh, has had a tricuspid valve replacement, but unfortunately has a grossly dilated, essentially failing right heart that just isn't, it's just not working. This this patient needs another heart. This heart function is so, so bad that this patient walks around with a life pack mm. on them. So previously had 
um, an implantable defibrillator, which unfortunately was giving um, inappropriate shocks. So this patient walks around with a life pack um, and my only hope is that this patient eventually gets a heart soon because mm. this is, I think, lifestyle impact has been massive. Mm. Anyway, as what often happens with p- people with grossly dilated right hearts is that they end up getting hepatic congestion and they develop varices. And this patient had a CT scan which showed potential varices, so had to undergo an endoscopy for assessment. Now, typically, I'm sure you can attest to this as well, typically young people don't like to be aware for these sorts of things. No. Their general approach is just do whatever you do, but <laughs> I don't want to know. I want to be out. Yeah, And... Approaching this anaesthetic, and to be fair, having never spoken to this patient about having an anaesthetic, I was really worried that this was going to be the approach that this person mm-hmm. had as well. Mm-hmm. And I think what I learned this week is never underestimate the power of taking time to talk to someone because as it turns out, the beauty of having people with very severe medical conditions is often they're very aware of their risk. Mm. And as it turned out, this patient was actually very motivated to be as awake as possible and to have as little anaesthetic as possible. So we, I gave some midazolam and we did some topical spray with a lot of lignocaine And the patient absolutely glossed through this procedure beautifully. Mm. So it just, I suppose Mm. what I've learned is, you know, I was convinced going into this without having spoken to the patient that we were going to need deep sedation and that actually wasn't the case. So Mm. it never hurts to just take that extra time. Yeah, don't Mm. make assumptions. People Mm. can still shock you and it it pays to just take the extra time to have that conversation if that's something you're concerned about. So, and be open and honest. I was open and honest with this Mm. this patient um, and the patient was very appreciative of that and very respectful of that and I think as well it it generated a really meaningful dialogue between the two of us about what we were both going to do mm. in this situation so yeah I yeah, think that's, that's what I heard that's a very that's good thing I to learn in anesthesia yeah something different thank you so much for joining us on this epic topic as always you can contact us at deepbreathspod at gmail.com with questions or future episode suggestions follow us on your favourite podcast platform and give us a five star rating if you like what you hear If you know someone that you think would be a great interviewee or have a topic that you'd like us to cover, please feel free to let us know. And consultants, don't forget to claim CPD for tuning in for this episode. Thanks for listening and join us next time on Deep Breaths.